Welcome to Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. I am your host, Lori McGraw. I have spent the past 30 years in leadership, and over the years, I've come to learn one thing. Women need women, and not just any women, but inspiring women. Tune in every week to hear from women at the pinnacle of their careers and from others who are just starting out. Episodes can be found at inspiringwomen.show or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will be inspired. Welcome to this episode of Inspiring Women, and I am so pleased today to be talking to Dr. Dana Zanone. Dr. Zanone is the Vice President and Health Informatics Officer at Adventist Health. Now, she has spent the past dozen years or so implementing large-scale technology systems across all points of care in large systems like Adventist Health. She has deep experience in technology and importantly, in the use of that technology at the point of care for the best optimal delivery of care by the physicians and clinicians of the organizations that she's working with. Dr. Zanone started herself in private practice before she became a large-scale HIO, Health Informatics Officer. And Dr. Zanone, I'm so pleased to be speaking with you today. Well, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, great. Well, let's let's get started. I always start off um, on inspiring women. You know, you've got this long career with technology and delivering clinical systems um, into healthcare organizations. But what are you doing right now? What is the day to day of being an HIO, a health informatics officer at Adventist Health? I think one of the the biggest challenges is always kind of looking ahead, looking to the future and making sure that we're steering the Titanic, so to speak, um, towards what is believed to be sort of that end goal or where technology is going to take us. And of course, you know, in healthcare, we are behind the eight ball when it comes to technology. We're behind, say, banks and, you know, social media platforms and those kind of things. So we can look and see both, you know, the positive things and where they've gone, but also lessons learned and try to avoid some of the pitfalls that we've seen in technology. So I think that's our biggest challenge is try to steer this large ship towards the future and technology and where we're going to go. I want to talk about that because you've got so much experience in these systems. And, you know, I, I have a long background in healthcare technology and know how complex it is. Yet at the same time, you know, in that space, things outside of healthcare are absolutely speeding up. So I'm going to want to get some perspective um, on that from you. But before we go right there, it'd be great to just get a little bit of the personal story, the background. You, know, you started off in um, as a family medicine physician in your own practice before you moved into technology technology implementations. Like, how did that happen? How did you go from being a physician, an amazingly important career opportunity to them moving into technology? You know, it was an interesting evolution because if you would have asked any of my um, med student mentors or residency mentors, they would have laughed because I am very much a people person and um, really love people from birth to older people. And that's one of the reasons I became a family physicians. Um, but what happened is we decided we wanted to, my partner and I wanted to be a paperless office. So in 2000 and 2001, that's kind of a novel concept. Most family physicians were still on paper at that time. 
um, EHR was like sort of an up and coming thing, but that's what we wanted to do. So we investigated and we put in a system called A4 Healthmatics, which today is now Allscripts Professional. And at that time, I started taking some classes and I had um, a great friend who was a Microsoft certified person and he was a really good friend to me. And so for free, which doesn't happen very often, you know, he felt sorry for our little two-person practice. Help me, kind of, <laughs> yeah, he he was great. So you know, don't don't discard the the value and the wisdom of people maybe not in the healthcare industry, but that are interested in advocating for you and helping you. So he did, and uh, taught me so much um, about servers and the, the infrastructure and hardware and and what needed to be done, and even about security and backups and all kinds of things. And I took some classes, and I found that I really had a knack. Um, for the logic of putting in, you know, alerts and building things within the system. So I just started doing that. And it was not even just about putting in the technology, but it was also about putting in the processes. And the process, the operational processes are just as important because you have to have the people to actually do the jobs. The technology doesn't do the job for you. So this was recognized. I sold my um, little two-person office. We sold that to our local hospital where they asked me to put the same system that I was achieving success with and some of our other family practice offices, which we did. And then we put Allscripts Enterprise into um, a multi-specialty system and I helped them with that and the processes um, to make that successful. And then we moved on to the hospital and it was around that time that I then moved on to uh, Omaha, Nebraska. So um, I'm both a, I, I am a technology person, but I'm more a process person, I would say. Well, one of the largest issues and just, you know, myself, I had, you know, my background many years at Allscripts and those types of systems. Um, so I have a vendor perspective, if you will, um, on that side of things. But there was a lot of um, heartache and heartburn implementing those systems. So as a physician leader, understand the process, how, do, how were you able to be helpful? And there's a big difference from a two physician practice where there still are a tremendous amount of important workflow to moving to a system like Adventist Health with, you know, thousands and thousands of clinicians on the front line. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. I would say that Allscripts and any of the other vendors, Epic, Cerner, you name them, they're just full of wonderful and well-meaning people. And I have encountered so many of them through the years, but they're, they're not doctors by and large. And they don't, uh, it's what I say, they don't speak doctor. They didn't learn that, that cultural, that deep cultural learning that we as physicians learned in our med school and residency about how to care for a patient. And so I take the opposite tactic. I don't approach technology as, okay, I've got this technology, now I need to take care of the patient. I approach it from the opposite way. I know how to take care of a patient and I know how to do that efficiently. How do I make the technology accommodate that workflow so that I have given the providers the easy button and I have done my best job of taking care of that patient and make sure that nothing has fallen through the cracks. And when you approach it from that standpoint and you get the buy-in from all of your colleagues, if they're cardiologists or neurologists, whoever they may happen to be, and you translate their workflow and what they do every day and make that technology works for them, that's where you see success. It's not the technology, it's the process that comes first. 
Well, process really matters. And we also know for electronic health records, you know, for all of the positives that they've brought to the healthcare system, they've brought enormous challenge in the form of burden, in particular, and burnout to physicians. And you've you've written about and talked about how to balance the needs of the physician, the physician's moral code with the needs of the system and the technology or value-based care types of things that are um, important important to the overall healthcare system. Could you talk about that a little bit more? I think that's such an important thing that even today, those issues need to be addressed, you know, with a lot of effort. It is. I think change management, and and I don't think I've ever been to an interview or a conference where change management wasn't discussed. And when we talk about physician burnouts, and there's many physicians around the country that have discussed this, is it really that physicians are burned out from being physicians, because we didn't used to see that, you know, 60, 70 years ago. I mean, a doctor would become a doctor and they would be a doctor well into their 70s and not even want to retire. And now we have lots of physicians that are leaving the field. And, you know, some people have pointed the finger at technology. Other people have pointed the finger at lots of different other things. But when I look at it, I say, If you align the technology to the physician's inner moral code, you are going to be more successful. And so in my article, I really talk about the fact that the moral code to physicians, their internal moral code is about the highest level of taking care of each one of those patients and the families and friends that go along with those patients. And so aligning what you're doing with technology to that is helpful. And I was particularly talking about this with population health because um, that's sort of the new buzzword, value-based care, population health. Are we all going to go in that direction? I believe we are, but physicians don't take care of a bunch of Blue Cross and Blue Shield patients, or they don't take care of a bunch of Aetna patients. Doctors take care of a patient, and they don't care what insurance that patient has. That person in front of them at that moment needs to be taken care of. And so technology, in my mind, um, even though you may, they can find the insurance information or they can find out um, all these other things about the patient, we should make that technology smart enough for that doctor and that one particular patient that they know that if they take action as we've asked them to for that patient, that it is fair and equitable for all patients. I'm not just giving mammograms to Blue Cross and Blue Shield patients. I'm not just giving colonoscopies to Aetna patients. All my patients need those services. And so it's important on the executive level and from the an administrator that I understand where we're going with all of these different metrics and measures, and that I'm meeting the requirements of those insurers. But what I say in that is the individual doctor needs to take care of all their patients equitably, and that's a major moral focus for them. And how are you doing in terms of just, you know, with all the experience that you have of these technology implementations in large-scale healthcare systems, how, how are you able to bring that to life? Um, are you able to, I mean, as a physician, you know this deeply, I mean, the, the way you talk about it sounds right to me, uh, and, and yet that you also know that this is not always the what people lead with first in large-scale implementations. So how are you able to break through? or or where aren't you um, that you want to still break through? 
um, as far as the moral code of physicians? Right. That orientation that you're talking about of the physician-patient relationship being the more, I would say, primary versus population health, which looks more, more broadly at, um, you know, certain populations. You know, I think I've just been pretty successful of, of making that upfront. I'm a very transparent person. So any leadership position that I've been in, I... I lead with that as a leader. And I say, you know, I have a set of guiding principles that are internal to myself and I bring this to my role and we need to align. And that first principle is patients come first always. And it's all patients. It's not just a particular group of patients. And I'm going to do my best to make sure that we do the best job we can to do that. And my second goal in all of my roles has been to, I find myself the physician for the physicians. What do I need to do to help physicians, other providers, and staff take care of those patients that we all really care about? And if you just focus on those two major principles in any kind of meeting, you can get to consensus with people because different people are going to have different opinions. But if you agree on what the underlying moral principle is, most of the time they all come to the same conclusion. Well, that's actually really helpful. I think that's terrific advice because, you know, many people work on complex problems. There's not enough resources. There's not enough time. You know, there's not enough who knows what to solve um, a particularly large scale organizational level problem. And you're simplifying it to guiding principles that you stand by and what you stand for and how and, and that helps you advance whatever the agenda project um, that you're doing. That's Dana, I think that's terrific advice, actually. I wanted to pivot a bit in, in the conversation to some other large issues that are out there in healthcare today in the mental health area. And you have uh, shared stories just about how this is a critical issue to you. You see it, you feel it, you've, um, you have um, some personal uh, experience with this, and you shared a story, um, a very personal story about your sister. I, I, I wanted to ask you about this just to bring light on some of these issues of mental health, which were all reading about, but just how serious they are and how they play out in the healthcare system. Would you mind, Dana, just sharing a bit about that? No, no, not at all. And in fact, uh, one of the morals of my family is you don't have to be crazy to be in our family. We'll train you. And I, I kid about that. But in my family, there has been a lot of depression and bipolar disorder. And as a physician, I know that that is um, a hereditary condition. It's a pretty high likelihood if you have a parent with bipolar disorder, about 25%. If you have one parent with bipolar disorder that you too will have bipolar disorder. My mother um, has bipolar disorder and she is still alive and doing well on medicine. But earlier in her life, um, she was not nearly as stable. My sister also had bipolar disorder and from a, a young age, essentially a child into her adolescence, she was different, quote unquote, is, is how I will say it. And so she really struggled with this. And uh, Laura, you and I, um, when we had chatted before, I talked about this. Mental illness is a brain disease. Um, it's an inherited brain disease, just like 
um, having high cholesterol, just like having um, a tendency for type two diabetes, just, you know, so many other diseases are inherited and this is inherited too. And so it's important for us to talk about it and be open about it. And that's one of the reasons I'm very open about it. And in the case of my sister, um, she really did struggle and she had such severe, you know, psychotic type bipolar disorder um, that she was in and out of um, different inpatient care a number of times through the years. Um, she had numerous suicide attempts. Um, she became addicted to drugs as a result um, of her disease and um, eventually took her life when she was uh, 46 years old, um, leaving behind three um, beautiful daughters. And, you know, it's it's just really a tragedy because the death rate for bipolar disorder is about 10 percent untreated. And so that's what the natural course of the disease is. And so it is really important for us to treat it like a disease and to get people to remission and keep them in remission and remove the stigma, the social stigma that goes along with that so that people can lead healthy, productive lives. And I use her as my example that I wish I would have known her as an adult, treated and in, in remission. And I never got that chance. And it it makes me sad. It makes me sad that I never had that opportunity. Well, well, Dana, the story is, first of all, incredible. And I really appreciate you sharing it. It is tragic. It is, it's hard to hear um, in terms of how painful that must be for you, your family, um, and other people who were in the circle of your sister's life. As you talk about it, as you um, are in conversations, there's a lot of conversation today about mental health and mental health awareness and, and people feeling, you know, the pandemic has brought a new light on that, um, perhaps. Do you think that's helping? Do you think that we're having the right conversation? conversations? Do you think more services are needed? What do you see as the things that need to get done, given just how very close this issue is um, to you personally? I think the pandemic has really increased the suffering of a number of people who maybe have teetered on the precipice of, you know, severe depression or having other things. Many people have lost their homes and their jobs and just social interaction. We're social creatures. You know, and it's almost startling now um, when I go out in public because we sense, spent so much time sequestered and it, it makes people anxious, right? I feel that anxiety is really high right now. Just we're afraid of each other because of the disease and everything that's been going on. And I think it's fed into the, the other underlying political unrest that I think our country has been facing. So there's a a lot of things I believe that are playing into it. And I also think when we talk about technology and, you know, I like technology, I'm a technologist, but children should not, in my opinion, and this is my recommendation as a physician, shouldn't be on their devices more than, than one to two hours a day. And yet I know that children are on there nine, 10, 12 hours a day. And the studies show that this leads to a higher incidence of depression and triggers other mental disorders. So we, that, I think that's one of the things that we need to talk about. We need to get education out there. And I think parents need to be able to limit that device interaction and become aware of how 
impactful it is on young people and on themselves. We all need to disconnect, right? Put your phone aside. How many times have we all gotten a, a ding in the middle of the night and you're not on call, but yet you still wake up and look at that message that at one o'clock in the morning that, you know, really you didn't need to look at until early in the morning, you know, until the next day. Right. And so, so when you think about technology in, in the actual work that you do, are you also trying to decrease the amount that people have to spend using that technology? How does that play into what you do? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I know it's kind of paradoxical for me because my whole, <laughs> I know my whole goal is uh, like I'm a um, and every CMIO that listens to this will understand this is, you know, I count the clicks. I'm a click counter. How, how do I reduce clicks? If you're going to add something for a doctor or a nurse to have to do, what else have you taken away? What have you done to give them the easy button? How have you set everything up so that they just have to click one button to get all the five different things that needs to happen for, I'll just say, you know, lung cancer screening, you know, how do we make sure that it's just one click and now they've dropped the, the right note into their note and they've ordered the CT scan and they've ordered the follow-up for the CT scan and they've given the education to the patient. So those are some of the things that I think about as a technologist is like the technology should help them. They shouldn't be serving the technology. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it also are those those two are complex problems um, to solve because there's more and more technology coming forward. Some of it's shiny, some of it doesn't work in the workflows, which creates new issues. But so so I understand the complexity of it. But Dana, as you think ahead and as we sort of close out here on inspiring women, what are you optimistic about in terms of are you optimistic about the future of technology and how healthcare and solving some of these large issues. Um, you know, what's your, what's your point of view there? I, I do. I'm very optimistic about it. One of the things that I am super enthusiastic about is AI. And the reason that I'm enthusiastic about AI, even though I know that there are some real world, um, especially real world in the United States problems to solve and making sure that Dana, that Dana Zanone and her record everywhere she goes is Dana Zanone. Um, and just imagine if you have a, a much more common name like, you know, Maria Gomez, you know, that that is following me around. But when I look at AI, there's the opportunity to make technology actually work for us. And so that when a recommendation is made for a patient, that I have explored every opportunity out there to know that this Maria Gomez, this is the right Maria Gomez, and she has not yet had her mammogram, even though 10 other Maria Gomez's did get their mammogram. And so that's both the challenge of the next few years, but also the excitement to me that I see. And I also see that I think we, in the digital space for patients, consumers, that we will see more technology in the healthcare space that actually is helpful for them rather than the opposite. It seems to me, I kind of chuckle sometimes when I see Google and other people are getting into the healthcare space, like they're going to just jump in and solve it. It's very complicated. It's very complex. Right. <laughs> we all know that, but I think we need to look at it like, why do people go on Facebook? Why do they use Instagram? Why do they use whatever program it is that they're using, games that attract us? And we need to replicate that experience for patients so that that technology does help them. 
I agree. I agree. And there's a, there's certainly a lot more to do there. And, you know, one of the things I also recently read, I found very encouraging were that there are more women moving into STEM like career choices, you know, as sort of a next wave of employment opportunities. So Dana, last question as we close out, this has been so interesting and I really appreciate you sharing your perspectives and your personal stories, but for those younger women, perhaps who are exploring opportunities in STEM and in technology, any last closing advice that you'd like to leave on Inspiring Women here? Well, I would say I, I highly encourage women to do STEM, and especially in the in the healthcare industry, it is still predominantly male-dominated, as you and I both know, but overall, it's almost entirely women who actually take care of patients. And so that's very interesting to me that there's such a disparate gap between who takes care of patients and who actually is making decisions in healthcare. And so I say to women um, when they say, oh, well, I, I think there's nothing wrong with being a nurse and it's a great field to be in if that's what you're chosen to do, but don't just choose to do that because you think that's the only thing you do get to the highest level of education that you can possibly reach so that you can be the one to help drive decisions when it comes to healthcare and it, when it comes to the values that this country holds and the value that we bring to the table as mothers and decision makers within our own families and our own culture. Well, that is um, great advice. I'm happy to hear it and I agree with it. And we have been talking to Dr. Dana Zanone here on Inspiring Women. And Dana, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.